Well, ordinarily I would say good afternoon and welcome to Friday follow-up. But today, it, yes, it's Friday already. We are slightly later than we intended to be, so I will say to you good evening and welcome to a Friday follow-up, the podcast brought to you by Equine Devil's Advocate. It's actually been quite a nice day today and not so much of the lashing rain that we'd have recently and hopefully, being as it's evening at the stables, neighbour will be quiet. I'm rather hoping he's gone shopping for a new man toy. So, let's resume. Of course, today's episode is the follow-up for what will be, I promise, honestly, the final episode of The Curse of Tutankhamun. And, of course, the responses from you all in regards to the question that I posed to you. Now, on Monday, the question, of course, was, what do you think caused this pony to become such a beast? And what do you suppose could have caused that beast to become quiet again? And, of course, perhaps you maybe thought of both. As I said, it was not a trick question by any means, but it is actually just interesting to hear the thoughts of others. And, of course, Friday follow-up is where we get to hear your correspondence. So many thanks to those of you that did write in. I wasn't entirely sure at all what to expect in correspondence from this story. Um, It was a mixed bag, and there weren't actually terribly many of you. Hardly surprising, but... Anyway, here goes. Firstly, we had... What on earth were you thinking getting on it in the first place? Did you have a death wish? LOL. Well, as I said, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And looking back, yeah, I'm slightly inclined to agree with you. Then we had another one. I can't say what caused the curse as not much past history on the relationship with his other owners. However, it seems that your instant attraction to him, combined with some timely help by Angel, gave you the strength of character to work with him and build your trust and bond. It does seem that your resolve to better yourself, to be a better rider so you could stay on board, helped significantly. That combined with your generosity of spirit, not to blame him, but work with him, enabled a love and respect of equal quantities to develop into a perfect partnership on both sides. A timely reminder to us all, but especially poignant to myself. And here's another one with a slightly different perspective. I think that the curse of uh, the cause of the curse was that Tutankhamun was allowed to get away with bad habits by not having capable children riding him. This therefore meant that he was able to gallop off and children fall from him because they didn't have the knowledge or balance to stay on. Once this happened a few times, the pony would have learnt to do it every time. She asks, was Tutankhamun passed around a lot? If so, This could mean that he didn't gain the trust from his owners and didn't want to turn into the great pony that he had become due to a lack of understanding. She also adds, 
I think part of the resolution was the fact that a Kimblewick was introduced and that Equine Devil's Advocate was willing to work with him and gained a great bond. And here we have another one, again with a slightly different theme. I think it's really hard to work out exactly what the reason was, as there is so little history other than his reputation. His reputation is not specific enough to pinpoint what might have started the whole behaviour. I do, however, think that he began to respect you, perhaps because of your resilience and because you didn't give up. Not conclusive, I know, but I'm really keen to hear what gave you that inkling and possibly the answer. And so, let's finish with this one. I fumbled around in my head for quite some time, thinking of possible causes and answers. The more I thought, the more I went around in circles in my head, because nothing seemed to quite fit the whole picture. So, my conclusion, my answer is, I have not a jot of a clue. I am flummoxed. Thank you very much to everybody who felt brave enough to actually write in. Um, yeah, it is a tricky one, particularly as the violent bucking seemed to sort of render most people rather literally speechless, yet the joyful bolting across the sports field brought many, many opinions, thoughts and ideas. Clearly, he did have a reputation for this behaviour, which became especially noticeable at Pony Club Camp. So, let's continue and see if this next part of the story shines a bit of light on the whole issue. You see, at this point in time, everything actually really was totally hunky-dory. I did lots of riding with Gudrun and Sandy and lots of other friends too, we all did lots of swapping, we had lots of lessons, lots of hacking, and started going to competitions. As it turned out, he was, in fact, a very good jumping pony. We did fancy dress, we did gymkhana, and it was all utterly fabulous. And we also discovered the delights of the canal, and we would take our lunches and ride out all day, taking our ponies to the canal, tying them to trees and letting them graze, while we went for a swim. We truly were free-range children and everything was utterly hunky-dory. Now, there came a time when my father was away, again abroad. He had gone to Canada and, as always from trips away, when he returned he brought with him prezies, gifts. Ooh. On this occasion he brought for me what he was told was an Indian bridle. It was, in fact, two pieces of leather, a long piece and a short piece. No brow band, no nose band, no throat lash. It was hand-plaited, rolled leather with hand-crafted, rawhide, again plaited, toggles and keepers to adjust it and keep it in shape. The short piece acted as one single cheek piece and the whole of it together was really one long headpiece. It really was absolutely beautifully made and brought a whole new identity to the simplicity of a bridle. I loved it. It made me think of Indians just 
vaulting onto their striking coloured horses bareback, and their simplistic bridles adorned with feathers, as all could be seen in films. Such a spark to the imagination. Now, as my father had been away, this particular Sunday was perhaps a little more traditional than most of our Sundays. You see, most Sundays were up to the Savile Club early, dropped off with lunches and lots of snacks, and left free range for the whole day to go out with our ponies and our friends and our horses. Then we were collected early in the evening to go home. And prepare for school the next day. So, as I said, this Sunday was more about father. Well, after all, we did have amazing gifts, so it would not really be the best situation to sort of snatch and run. No, much better to spend time with him and be a domesticated child. Well, just for a couple of hours at least. Couldn't be that difficult. So. With Sunday lunch over, an afternoon film would be the order of the day, mostly so that my father could snooze his way through it. A western he chose. Well, that's good because it's got horses in it. I love to watch those cowboy and Indian horses galloping bareback with no reins, fast and true in a straight line, dust clouds rising from their hooves. The strong stagecoach horses, teams of six or more, all galloping and working as one, one big team. The cowboys crossing the deep, fast-flowing rivers, or standing at the precipice edge of a canyon somewhere in the hot sun. Three horses standing side by side, then one would peel away, neck reining with precision as the polo ponies did, and disappear at speed into the bright sunlight. The other two would remain standing stock still, ears pricked, looking out over the horizon, watching and listening to soaring eagles. How lucky they were! I would think to have all those fab horses and all that space to explore and ride. So you see, really, not so difficult to be domestic child, for a while at least. Film over. And father awakened from his lengthy snooze. There was time still to ride, for an hour or so, and of course I could not wait to turn my pony into an Indian pony, with his new, beautiful Indian bridle. So, bridle, or what there was of it, now nestled behind those gorgeous little golden ears, snuggled into that thick, fluffy, snow-white mane. It was time to attach some reins. Oh, and I forgot to mention we were now actually back in the snaffle. In fact, we had been for some time. Not only had father bought me a bridle, he had also bought me split leather reins to go with it. They were, in fact, very, very long, and a pale, almost sort of peachy colour leather. And quite wide too. They had no buckles or billets. They looped through the bit reins and then through themselves. And there they were, separate, one on each side, and tapered to a point at each end. Time to go and play cowboys and Indians by myself, as today we were late and everyone else was ready to go home.
Well, never mind. I am now once again free-range, independent child. So, out onto the sports field we went, down the storm ditch and up the other side. We turned left and stayed right of the white chalk line. Whilst I decided how to play out my cowboys and Indians fantasy, and so, after some deliberation, I decided. Galloping is the order of the day. Yes, that is what we will do. So I gathered my split reins in my left hand, between thumb and forefinger. With my right hand, I gathered some of the length that actually nearly reached down to his knees. And with one swift motion, I flicked the ends from right to left and back again in front of me. Just as I had seen the cowboys do, "Hia, hia!" I shouted at the same time, and within the blink of an eye, I found myself sat on the floor. My beautiful pony, far from speeding off into gallop, did completely the opposite. He stopped dead in his tracks, dropped his head, shot backwards at speed, somersaulting me straight over his. Head and neck into the grass of the sports field. Yes, there I was on my knees facing him, and he stood there, split reins trailing on the floor, one either side. But the look, the look he gave me—was it shock? Was it fear? No, it wasn't. Was it anger? No, it wasn't. But oh my! If ever a pony could transform a look into a petrifying, pointy finger, Tutankhamun was the one, because he did. His head was low, his ears were pointing at me, but his expression—well, it actually made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. His eyes darkened. Gone was that bright shine, that sort of visual smile, and in its place a slight coldness, an intensity, and a stare. Everything in his posture, his stillness, and his expression said, "Don't ever do that to me again." Being nine or ten at this point now, and feeling myself thoroughly admonished. I got up and said, "Oh God, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm really, I'm so so sorry," and I meant it. I absolutely knew I had crossed a line, and it wasn't the white chalk one. I climbed back on, extremely contrite, and continued my very sensible English hack. <clears throat> and as children do, very quickly is all forgotten, done and dusted in the past. For tomorrow is a new day. But as I said, hindsight, particularly with horses, is a wonderful thing. So from this point in the story, and looking back, this incident was probably the most insightful in terms of the cause of the curse, and in the way that he executed it. It was cool. It was calm. It was precise. And relatively speaking, drama-free, but boy, oh boy, that look spoke volumes. 
and I think gave me an insight into his past. You see, I had never hit him. I never carried a little short crop or a schooling whip in lessons or at any time. I know he wasn't afraid of them because the day I actually managed to stay on his back after his bucking trade, the onlooking groom literally ran at me with a crop in his hand for me to use to tell him off with. And as you probably remember, I opted for the pointy finger. But in that moment, he didn't so much as even flinch when I took it and held it in my hand. But I never used it on that occasion, or in fact, any other. But this incident spoke, as I have said, volumes. This behaviour, the human behaviour, was something he knew of. He definitely had a place in his history with this somewhere, and it was not in any way, shape, or form prepared. Tolerate it, ever, not now, not ever again. Even though we had become such good friends, I don't think at all that it was something he had forgotten. He might have put it to the back of his mind, but he had not forgotten it. Do I think he was beaten? No, he was not afraid. But I do think he knew only too well. The taste of human demand and consequence, consequences of those demands that are endless, demands of more and more and more, and when the demands are not met, what comes next? Do I know what those demands were? No, I don't. But I do think at some point he reached the end of his tether. The end of his rope and his tolerance. I am done with this. Enough. I do not want this. I do not need this. I will put up with this no more. Which actually begs the question: Do they have that level of intelligence? Do they think that way? Can they actually comprehend so fully injustice and carry that level of? Self-perspective and pride in their own conscience—that could be a very daunting thought, as in fact it means their generosity of spirit towards us really is an act of generosity and not an act of servitude. And looking back over the whole of the curse, I do think it was a test—a test of time. Not a test of my bendy bones, or how long it would take for me to give up and go away. No, I think it was a test to see how long it would take for me to turn into yet another two-legged, not yet grown person to start with the demands, whether they be the smacking with the crop, or the kicking every stride, or just dominance, endless demands of dominance. Do what I want, or there will be greater consequences. I do not think his behaviour was directed at me or any of the other children, or even the adults that had ridden him, in a personal way. I actually think it was a way to protect himself, 
to preserve his self-pride and his self-respect, that last semblance of his own identity, and it was his God-given right to do so, to keep that sense of self. It's something that should never be quashed and beaten down in any of us. And I think that day he chose to have some faith in my intentions after blitzing across the sports field. And I think when I crossed that line with my silly game of cowboys and Indians, he wanted me to know, to know that he was infinitely capable of self-respect and could fully comprehend what constitutes injustice. He wanted me to know that riding him was an act of generosity on his part and something to be appreciated and enjoyed, not something to be taken for granted. And so, it would seem, he was, in fact, aptly named after all. You see, Tutankhamun, the meaning of the name, is the living image of our moon. And who was our moon? In Egyptian mythology, our moon was the god that ruled all gods. And so, in conclusion to today's Friday follow-up, I leave you with those thoughts. How do they sit with you? And, of course, please do join us again on Monday for a new story, a new adventure, brought to you by Equine Devil's Advocate. You can, of course, join us on Podbean, Facebook, Spotify, and yes, the website, www.equinedevilsadvocate.com. And do please leave your thoughts, your feelings, and your experiences um, via email or, as I say, on comments. Until then, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take care, and we will speak soon. <laughs>